I'm going to stand on the spikes. I'm going to hold on to this massive tree that's coming out. And I'm just going to swing across and put my foot on the wall that's separating the two houses and jump into the garden. Great plan. Didn't work. Didn't work. I got, <laughs> I got shocked by the electric fence into the air. And if you see my arm here, the oh. scar, my, my whole arm was ripped open. And we're live. <laughs> live and ready. Are you ready? <laughs> What's up, everyone? Uh, today, we've got an absolutely incredible guest on the Wide Awake podcast, Jared Smith. He is an author, uh, a motivational speaker, and a recovering addict. Welcome to, the, <laughs> welcome to the studio, man. Thanks for having me. So, we've met up before and we've chatted a little bit about your story. Yeah. And um, it's a pretty, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a hard story to listen to, but I think one that's very relevant and one that a lot of people will relate to. Yeah. So I think let's just start all the way from the beginning. Full disclosure, I am ill today. <laughs> I am not feeling good. But Hopefully um, I'll motivate you. <laughs> Hope you feel better afterwards. Yeah, pump me up, pump yeah. me up. <laughs> Already I'm actually feeling a little bit better. Okay, good. Um, but yeah, welcome to the studio. And um, I think let's just start all the way from the beginning. Yeah, I think the most important part is like, what's, what, what I find different about my story is, is, and I don't mean this from a racial point of view, is that, I, I, I came from a good home. My parents were very influential people. My dad was a professional rugby player. My mom was in Miss Africa. She came second. So my parents taught me all the right things in life growing up, like all the right values, be honest, be kind, you know, treat people right. So I had no reason to sort of make the choices I made. You know, the story I'm going to share today, you, you, you have an idea of a certain person or a certain color or a certain community. But I, but I came from a, from a, influential community and I still did the things that I did. So it doesn't matter where you come from. You know, if you go through certain things and make certain choices, um, you can experience some severe consequences and find yourself in some pretty dark places. I think that's important to, 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 to say from the start. 100%. And I think coming from South Africa, yeah. um, I mean, there's so many different communities yeah. and this is a problem that affects yeah. all communities. 100%. Um, some more than others yeah. for, for many reasons. Yes. Um, and today I am probably going to mention my own experiences as well, because I know a lot of you tell me not to talk about my own stuff. They're like, stop talking. We're so sick of you talking about yourself. Um, but this is a topic I heavily relate to. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, this is a problem that is so prevalent in South Africa. So what I want to ask is, where did everything start? What was your childhood like? This is what, what I'm referring to is the addiction. Okay, so my childhood was was pretty okay, um, but when I was six and when I was twelve, I was SNA, SA, uh, SA. Yeah. So let me let me explain this as well. Um, because of YouTube's guidelines, certain words are like a no go zone. So we're talking about assault, uh, like sexual assault, molestation. So, yeah, what, what we're going to be saying is SA instead of instead of sexual assault. I know we've kind of said it already, but um, yeah, yeah, carry so, on. So 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 that's what happened when I was six and twelve um, by people that were looking after me, and I think I think you know the, the especially the work that I'm in, I see it on a daily basis. Kids, adults that have been SA'd by their grandpas, uncles, aunties, and it's, the stories that come out are horrific. A lot of people are walking around that have had that same experience, but because of shame and guilt, they keep it in. And, and I, I kept that secret in for about 12 years until I got to my first rehab and I had to share my experience. But I, but I honestly believe that those two experiences, especially the first one, 
opened my mind and my heart up to something dark because it it felt good, but I also knew it was wrong in some sense. You know, the 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 lady actually touched my private part, touched, got me to touch her breasts. And at a six at six years old, I remember I was wearing a, a small speeder, a black speeder. I got an erection, ran outside. It felt good, but also I went to go hide behind the bush because I didn't want my parents to see me with a, with a small little hard penis. And but the the interesting part is this: when the when when it was gone and everything settled back back down, I went back into the room for more. That already showed me that there was like an addictive personality. It felt good. I wanted that rush. And the interesting part is, you know, I was very close to my domestic worker, and she used to carry me around a lot. And it was her friend that did that to me. And after that experience, every time my, my, my nanny used to carry me around, all I wanted to do was touch her breasts, kiss her neck. I was like sexually awoken. And I was only six years old. Why was your f- nanny's friend in the house doing this to you? So, so, so basically, my nanny had her own room at the back. And I used to spend a lot of time with her because she was like, like you and Caroline, like best friends. We were best friends. And my nanny was in the shower. And her friend was sitting on her bed in her room, in her spare room. And basically, I was in there as per normal. So my nanny didn't see any of this happening because she told me to sit on her lap. Um, and then she started kissing me and touching me and getting me to touch her boobs. So my, my, my nanny didn't see any of it. Um, so that, that's how that happened. And the second time was with the lady that was babysitting me. And I was 12. And, and I was sort of, if I'm really honest... I was um, con- I consented it in some sense because I'm a teenage, young teenage boy. You, you were 12. Yeah, I was 12. There's no such thing, in my opinion, yeah. as consent at 12 years old. Yeah. If you are 12 years old, and how old was your... Uh, 28. 28. There's no such thing as yeah. consent there. I get that. Um, a 12-year-old, I mean, when you think of a 12-year-old, yeah. especially at the age we are now, yeah. um, that is a baby. Yeah, and I get that. That is a baby, you know? I think why I say that is because... I was, if I'm really honest, I was a horny little bugger and it felt good. So I suppose from her part, it is wrong. Um, and again, those were secrets that I kept. And, and, and we know, both of us and people that are listening, a lot of people are carrying around secrets. And, and it's cliche, but secrets keep us sick. They're like, they're, like, they're like almost rocks in a bag that you're carrying around, but they're invisible. They, they create anxiety, they create depression, they create addictions. Um, and, and yeah, it was only when I got to a place where I actually started to deal with that trauma that I actually found healing in that, in that part of my life. And did you never say anything to anyone about this when it was happening? No, not at all. But, uh, but like I said, it did, it did, affect, it did affect my life um, from the age of six because I was very sexually active. Like just in, you know, I just looked at the world in a different way. I know it's, quote, normal. For, for, for young teenage boys to look at porn now and then. But, but I was like, you know, that was... It took over your life. It took over my life, yeah. Um, that's crazy. Yeah. And I think that's where the drugs came in because when I got high, it gave me a similar feeling to as if you're being aroused. Because when you smoke, you get, you get high, you get feel good. Um, so it, it was a similar... And maybe that's what I was searching for in the drugs, the same similar experience that I had when I was six because it, it did feel good. But it did, you know, obviously scar me and, and leave me with trauma. And at what age did you start using drugs? I started drinking at the age of about 13, um, grade 7, grade 8. and you Which, know, to be honest, is quite normal, I think. Quite normal, 100%. Yeah. But I think the, the, the thing about me was this. 
because I struggled with a low self-esteem. Um, you know, I didn't like what I saw in the mirror. Um, I, I felt like I, I felt like I had to put on a show and impress my friends, uh, give in to peer pressure so I could be accepted. I was, I was always willing to go the extra mile, you know? So, so if my friend said, let's go out and let's drink a few beers, you know, I would want to get smashed and drunk and create a scene and all sorts of stuff like that. I just always took it beyond. And that's why I got caught all the time. It's, it's something like, I mean, I can completely relate to that. Um, I never fitted in mm. and I always felt like an outsider growing up and my way of fitting in and being accepted is I was the one that always had everything. Yeah. You know, I was the one that was bringing stuff to the party and yeah. people were like, oh, he's here. But he, you know what I mean? Yeah. I had it. what people wanted and yeah. it was a way for me to get accepted. And it sounds like you were going through the exact same thing. Yeah, it's, it's the same thing. And if, if, if guys in class, you know, wanted me to throw a piece of paper, the teacher, because it's funny or drop a massive water balloon on my tricks when we in grade nine, um, I would do that. Even though it's going to get me into trouble, I wanted people to think I was cool. Um, and, I, and I think my addiction started way before the drugs. It started with making those decisions to escape my reality and to fit in because that's what it is. I was, I was looking for a way to, to, to almost find relief from the voices inside of me that told me I wasn't good enough or told me that, um, you know, I'm never going to amount to anything because people told me that from young, hey? People told me that you're going to be a failure. You're a mistake. You're not going to amount to anything. You might as well give up because I was naughty from a very young age. They, they said I would never be successful. Um, and did you ever feel a lot of pressure because of how successful your parents were? Yes, definitely. I, I definitely think there was a lot of pressure to perform. And I know I call it performance anxiety. And I think a lot of people out there struggle with this. There are a lot of kids that actually get to a point where they feel suicidal. And sometimes they take their own lives because their parents want them to get an A. They genuinely try their best, genuinely try their best. They're, they're, they're 82%er. They'll never get 90. That facts are facts. They'll study till they're blue in their face, but their parents want 90. And they are stressing their tits off. Sorry for my language. Because they literally want to impress their parents. They want to make their parents happy. They feel guilty because their parents are paying their school fees, but they're just not reaching that mark. But yeah, I was in trouble a lot at school. What kind of trouble? So uh, lighting a firecracker in class, a bunk in class, um, you know, drinking at school functions with friends, going to parties, causing problems, other parents calling the school, um, just disrespectful in class to teachers, calling them funny nicknames, Saturday detention, the basic. But I, I just would, would be relentless, you know. Um, and the headmaster of the school, he gave, me, he gave me quite a few chances because he knew I was a talented rugby player. And he said to my father, he said, Greg, this is before I got expelled. He said, Greg, just before, he said, Greg, your son is either going to be famous or he's going to jail. That's what he said. That's what he said to my dad a couple of months before I left. And the crazy part was, the part is, um, is that he could see where my life was headed. Because if you take from the age of 16 to 23, I was arrested over eight times. So he could see already in my behavior where my life was headed. Um, what were you arrested for? Uh, so, you don't have to name all of them, but so, some of them. So like we, 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 we stole cars, credit card fraud, golden diamonds, sold drugs, we were involved in prostitution. So, so, so basically arrested for those sort of things. And uh, what age was this again? Uh, well, I started, I started getting involved into the, into the gang scene at about 16 years old. 
breaking into people's houses, stealing cars and stuff, working at an escort agency, answering phone, collecting money. Um, and so how do you get involved in that at that age from the area that you were brought up in? Well, I, I, I live in Upper Weinberg. And if you just walk a few streets down, you, okay. get, to, you get to Weinberg Main Road. And Weinberg's run by the Funkies. Well, it was in those days. I don't know so much now. And just uh, meeting friends and hanging around with certain people. Um, I just got into that sort of, you know, lifestyle. I never fully became part of them. But um, at the end of the day, I started doing the same things they were doing. You know, I was, it's the same thing. I was looking for a place to belong and looking for a place to be accepted. And I was looking for a thrill and an adventure because when I got expelled from Weinberg, my rugby, which was my God, got taken away from me. I was empty. And my dream was to be a professional rugby player. I won awards for rugby. I got, I got offered scholarships for rugby. It probably would have happened if I, if I just stayed on the straight and narrow. I'll never forget the one guy that I made friends with originally. Um, he basically said to me, Jared, today we're going to go rob two people. We're going to steal their cell phones. We're going to sell it. And we're going to buy um, some dacha to sell at college. Now, at that point in my life, I was 16. And I'd, I'd never stolen anything besides chappies from the shop or a couple of two rands from my parents. And he gave me a knife from his mom's kitchen. And he had a knife. Went up to one of the schools. I'm not going to mention the names. And um, we waited for the boys to walk down to hostel. There's a gap there. And we pulled two boys aside, held a knife to their throats, took their cell phones and ran and sold them and bought a whole lot of weed and sold it at college. And that's where things started to change for me a lot, drastically. And why do you think that you agreed that you went along with this kind of behavior? Because I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to fit in. I wanted a place to belong. I wanted friends. I wanted to be liked. Because um, obviously leaving Weinberg, going to Abbott's, I had no friends. Um, and... I must be honest, after that experience, uh, it was scary, but also exciting. And I think that's why I got addicted to the lifestyle. And I'm, I say lifestyle, not just the drugs, everything, because there was excitement, there was adrenaline, there was a, I was able to escape. Um, and yeah, that's, that, I think that's what hooked me in. Um, and it helped me not look at myself and, you know, just numb myself from all the pain that was inside of me. And once you left school, I yeah. mean, did everything just escalate? Yeah. Well, in matric, it was already escalating. I was, I, was, I was sneaking out my window at night, missioning in the streets with the guys, coming back, studying. So, yeah, it was, it was already escalating. And then when, obviously, matric finished, um, yeah, from 18 to 23, it just got really bad um, with mm. the drugs. The one thing that I like to talk about um, is how this kind of behavior affects parents because uh like i did a podcast with my dad and i find it so interesting to get their perspective and obviously i can't speak to them but have you had a conversation with your parents about those years in yeah, your life yeah 100 and it's, it's it's in my book my parents actually speak in this book um where like like for example um when i was living at the gold shop in weinberg uh, my mom hadn't seen me in a couple of months and she came to pick me up, went for a cup of coffee. She dropped me off uh, in Weinberg Main Road. As I got out the car, my friend was waiting for me. Three guys across the road started chasing us with crowbars and chains. As I got out the car, my friend was waiting for me. These three oaks came running across the road chasing us, and we just ran down, down the alley, down. And she didn't know what the hell was going on. I had to phone her. And um, explain everything. A couple of hours later. But I, I can't imagine what there was, must have been like. Because when we hit the corner, she didn't know if they caught us or not. Um, and I know in my book, my mom said there were many times that she wanted to fall asleep and never wake up. 
because that's how much pain I caused. And my dad said, you know, the last month of my using, he was practicing my funeral speech like legit. Because, you know, after being in rehab eight times and spending nearly a million rand on you, um, psychologists, psychiatrists, trying to help your son live, and he just doesn't get it. They, my parents gave up hope, in a sense. Um, and my dad just said he, was, he, he, he would think to himself, how would he tell my mom and sister that I died? How would he actually break the news to them? And what kind of person would he say I was at my funeral? Who would he invite? And th these are the things that were running through his mind. So, yeah, my parents were highly affected by this. Um, but my parents did say, my mom said to me, which was profound, about a year ago, she said, Jared, I never thought I would say this, but the pain you caused us in the past was worth it for who you become. So, so that was profound because it really, it really did affect my mom mentally and physically and spiritually. It was just, yeah, it was hectic. You know, during our like active years, yeah. during your active years, you don't realize because you, we're so, you're so, addicts get so caught up in their own lives and their own behaviors yeah. and what's next. Like, I think the thoughts go through your mind, yeah. but you don't really stop and register them because if you stop and think about what you're actually doing, yeah. you'd be like, this is so messed up, yeah. you know? And, um, I mean, I can't even imagine, well, I actually can imagine what your parents went through because my parents went through the same thing. Um, I think it, it sounds a lot more hectic on your side, to be honest. Um, I mean, did you have any relationship really with them during that time? Not really. I think, it, I, think I broke those relationships quite badly from the beginning because what happened was I started stealing from them first. So stealing CDs, power tools, you know, I was Cash Crusaders, number one customer of the month. <laughs> And then my dad, started, my dad started going there and then I was blacklisted from there. So it's all about, you know, wanting to get high and stuff. And then obviously as I got involved more into the sort of gang life, the dark life, the underworld, they said, don't stop stealing from your family, start stealing from other people. And that's where I started, you know, um, you know, breaking to houses. And I, I'm sure they said that jokingly, <laughs> but you took it quite literally. No, they were being genuine. Okay. They were being genuine. They said, don't steal from your, it's almost like don't crap on your own doorstep. Yeah. Sort of principle. Um, and yeah, so, so, and like I said, so at the age of 16, 17, I was working at an escort agency answering phones, guys would come in there, they, I would collect the money and, and stuff like that, selling drugs. Um, and then, yeah, I think, I think, I think it gave me a false sense of power. Um, because it's, you know, now, now you the main, I used to, I wore my silk boxes, I'd answer the door. I was the one that was in charge. A friend of mine used to work with me there as well. We would, you know, set the room up and collect the money, time. And some of the people that you that come in there, you'll be surprised. Uh, even a, a water polo coach from one of the schools, prominent schools, came there. Um, and it's it's just amazing to see. It's it's like the, 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 that lifestyle, what I saw and what I experienced. Yeah, you know, it was, just felt like in a movie sometimes. And will you tell me a little bit about the the way those kind of places operate? So basically, I'm sure there's a lot of shady stuff going on in terms of the the escort agencies. Yeah. Yeah, so it's 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 basically you know, at the end of the day, the it's a it's also a front because um, at the back there are drugs hidden for other people um, under bricks and tiles and all that stuff, and it's run as a as a brothel obviously, and they let their clients come in there and also use drugs. There's an outside room. Uh, the girls that are working there are also using drugs. So if you want to use drugs with a girl, you you got to pay a little bit more. Not all of them do, but a lot of them do. Um, um, so so it's yeah, it's it's a lot of 
some of the some of the places that I was at, they would sell the drugs out of the brothel as well. Um, so it's not always, you know, that clean slate. You go in there, it's just it's just it's just pay for sex and have sex. Um, and was this a high end place or not no, really? Not really high end. Three fifty an hour. One guy actually tried to steal money from one of the girls there, and uh, it was quite scary what they were gonna do to him. Um, but yeah, they 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 put uh, snooker balls in socks in a rugby sock and they sorted him out. But um, yeah, that, that that's the sort of. I mean, I even saw. I mean, in that time, I saw a lot of uh, prostitutes who were girls get beaten and beat up because not by me, but by the gangsters because they didn't want to work or they didn't pay enough money, you know, or they were trying to lie about where they were. So yeah, it was, you, you gotta, you gotta have a certain mindset. Otherwise it's going to affect you, um, in a way. And getting back to like your arrests. Yeah. Um, were you just arrested or did you ever actually spend time in prison? So the, 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 the crazy part is this, the longest time I spent was about a, about a week. But the guys that I was involved with, the four friends, we did the, we did everything together. Uh, and somehow they ended up going to Paul's Moon. I didn't, I don't know how that worked. Um, but yeah, they ended up going, I mean, Shanda went for, for, for two years and eight years. Uh, France went for five years. And then our friend Shane, uh, he was murdered. Um, they stabbed him in his heart. Uh, he, he stole uncut diamonds, we think from the boss and they stabbed him in his heart in Weinberg in 2006, I think on a Sunday afternoon. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's freaky. And obviously over the years, you know, a lot of my friends that are, that I know have overdosed, been murdered, um, still in jail. Um, and, and a lot of my friends that go to jail, they, they message me on Facebook while they're in jail, they want money. <laughs> They, seriously, I've got a friend now who's in Paul's more at the moment. Two of them, actually. I, mean, I spoke to um, Turner Adams. You know yes, Turner yeah, Adams? Yeah. And uh, I mean, he was telling me the way things work in prison. And yeah. it's like, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, money how, for, for twerk. And, and a lot then, of the prisoners have quite a lot of control, you yeah. know, and a lot of power. Yeah. Not just over other prisoners, but over, over wardens. Over the wardens and people yeah. on the outside. 100%. You know, because a lot of the time, I'm sure it's a lot of fear tactics, yes. scare tactics. The wardens, a lot of the time, live in the same areas. 100%. So it's like, you know, if you don't do what we're telling you to do. Yeah. There's going to be consequences. There's going to be consequences. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, you're very lucky that you didn't actually go to, go to pause. hundred percent. Uh, you know, that's why I always say I'm, I'm not here to, to make my story sound intense. I'm here to tell the truth. Like, you know, I'm not here to glorify. And the truth is intense. Yeah. And the, 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 the craziest part of my story, one thing that I want to share is that, sorry, is that, um, is we, 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 one of the crazy things we did, we used to pretend when I was living in Somerset West. We used to pretend we were deaf. We would sell deaf cards. We would remember like this and speak. And we would sell little deaf cards with, uh, and there's no offense to, to, to deaf people, this is just what we did. Um, we literally would sell the little cards with the signs on it, and you can make a 10 or a 20 rand donation. And we would go around to like Canal Walk, shopping centers in Somerset West, and we would probably make on a good day a thousand, two thousand bucks um, getting, se selling these cards. And the one day there was a guy with me doing it and I don't know what he did, um, but he upset me and I just took all the money and I told him to find his own way back to, to Somerset West because we were in Stellenbosch. A couple of days later, I saw him and at that point in my life, I was injecting tick. I wasn't smoking it anymore because my throat was stuffed. Um, 
And I didn't even know you could inject it. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's obviously a lot, a lot different. And I saw him, and he waved, and and I thought, okay, we'll just we'll hang out, we'll hang out, we'll let bygones be bygones. We went off, got some drugs, and um, I think I hadn't slept in a few days, and I put the took in the water, got my needle ready. He was sitting behind me, lighting, like he was. I think he was smoking. I don't know what he was doing. But I injected into my arms, and as I injected my arm, I just this, my eyes started closing, and my whole body felt like there were ants. And it, it felt insane. I thought I was dying. And I thought, what's going on here? And I licked my hands. He gave me salt. So he, he, I don't know if he was trying to kill me, because I don't know what happens if salt goes into blood. Um, I'm sure it's not good. Yeah, it's not good. So, but luckily I didn't die. But I think he he was hoping that something serious would happen to me because of what I did to him in Stellenbosch. But it's just amazing how, for me, how God's hand, how God's grace was upon my life because obviously there was a bigger purpose that even though he tried to take me out, God's plan stood and I survived that scary thing. I mean, there are many times people chased me and tried to take me out. I had to leave Cape Town and go to the Eastern Cape to live for a while because of certain things we did um, around crime and, and gold and diamonds and X, Y, and Z. So, Yeah. I also want to talk about, like, because obviously you went through a lot. Yeah. But I also like to keep things light in a yes. way. Yeah. I mean, do you have any funny stories from your time in active? I think, I think, I think this is a funny story. Um, <laughs> I think I got two. I'll be the judge of that. Yeah. Well, basically, it was in the early days. Um, we were 16. And um, we went out to Claremont and we got a bit drunk. Um, myself and three friends. Came home at about 11 o'clock. And um, th in those days, we only had Nokia 3310. So it was SMS. There were chicks that lived up the road, some girls. They sent us an SMS saying, hey, come visit. Let's, let's smoke some weed. So obviously, you know, four young men, a couple of chicks. We were a bit tipsy. We were like, yes, we're going. So I picked up the intercom, pressed the buzzer, out the gate we went, up the road we went. Only myself and my other friends smoked with the girls. The other two guys just stayed drunk. Um, and on the way down, we were, we had the luckies, we were laughing. And when we got to my front gate, cause my, my parents' house, it runs from one road, the, the, there's, there's entrance here and there's the entrance here, two, two different roads. I realized we I don't have keys. We can't get inside. It's like two 30 in the morning. We stink like bunch. We <laughs> laughing our heads off. Uh, and, and now we got, now we're like, okay, what is it? Do we ring the bell? How mom, I'm home. Or do we James Bond it? So obviously in that mindset, we're going to do a James Bond. Now, I must explain to you that my parents' house has electric fences around it. Okay. The, 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 the neighbor's walls have sparks on it. Okay. The only wall that doesn't have anything on, on it is the wall separating my house and the neighbor's house. So we go to the front of the house where the two walls meet, neighbors and my dad's, and the, and the join. Now, the plan is they're going to lift me up. I'm going to stand on the spikes because they're not straight up, they're at an angle. I'm going to stand on the spikes. I'm going to hold on to this massive tree that's coming out. And I'm just going to swing across and put my foot on the wall that's separating the two houses and jump into the garden. Great plan. Didn't work. Didn't work. <laughs> I, got, I got shocked by the electric fence into the air. And if you see my arm here, the oh. scar, my, my whole arm was ripped open. By the spikes? By the spikes. Oh it looked like God. a shark had bit me. It's, it's so funny because you could have gone the electric fence way. 
Yeah. And just been shocked. Yeah. Or you could have gone the spikes way and just been yeah. cut. But you went in the middle and got mashed by both of them. But it's but it's crazy because like if you think about it, they, they sit at an angle, you could have could have easily caught you under your neck. Oh. But anyway, so I hit the ground and I feel like my arm's throbbing. I look at it. I start I start laughing. And now these three oaks are tripping. <laughs> the one oak wants to go get the skin back so he can take it to the hospital to, to soak him so back <laughs> on. He doesn't understand that it's split. We have to wake my parents up, go to hospital, um, get it stitched up, and then uh, went to the beach the next day, smoked a joint. Um, another funny story that I can tell you from in rehab, it's a bit, it's a bit crude though. You only allowed Try five, to keep the language. Yeah, there's no, no, no language. Okay. It's, you allowed five cigarettes a day. And now, you know, for, for most guys that start out in recovery, their cigarettes is like golden. Yeah. Now, we had a quite a, I don't know what the word is. He was quite um, dark, the, the, our, our, our lay counselor, the guy that looked after us in the dorm. What do you mean by that? Uh, massacre, like... Do, okay, so you don't mean skin color. No, no, he was, okay. quite, he was, <laughs> you know, he was quite dark in like his mentality. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stories, but I'll just focus on this one. He said to us the one night, he had these little black chilies. He said, if anyone sticks this chili up their butt, right, he'll give everyone a cigarette in bed. Uh, now that's like golden. There's one guy, Robin, took this black chili, stuck it up his bum, and bro, I promise you now, within, <laughs> within about five minutes, his skin went red. He was on the toilet, and he obviously had, his stomach was going. And while he was in there, the oaks were throwing, um, you know, Dawn cream. It's like, a, it's, it's, it's like, it's, I don't know. It's, it's like Nivea, but Dawn, it's a okay, cheaper yeah, version. Yeah, yeah. yeah o- I don't know. O's were throwing chilies in his cream. <laughs> and as he would come out, the, out of the, so you go to the toilet, shower. Dude, this sounds like, like frat boy. Yeah, he would go to the toilet, then to the shower, try to get, because it was burning him from the inside out. Then he put the cream on, the cream had chili pips and stuff, and it was burning him even more. So, and then while, while he was tweaking out, everyone was smoking their cigarettes. So, uh, so yeah. he was the only one that didn't get a cigarette, basically. Oh, I don't know. I can't remember. But yeah, <laughs> we were enjoying our cigarettes on his behalf. But yeah, uh, in the moment, it, it was funny. Um, Some it, wild stuff happens in treatment, eh? Yeah, bro. That's a, that, I think that's another book on its own. <laughs> but, uh, but I think at the end of the day, for me, it's like I came to a place in my life where through my decisions to not deal with my pain, not deal with my trauma, not make, you know, healthy choices. I was living on the streets in Somerset West, sleeping on three crates and a cardboard box. That, that was my bed. Three crates, mattress, cardboard box. I had three-quarter jeans, shoes with holes in it, black vest. These teeth are fake. They went half from all the drugs. Thin. My father said that I looked thinner than my grandfather when my grandfather died of cancer. So I probably weighed about 61 kgs. I'm now about 85. And you're a big guy. Yeah, like, so, I mean, you're not a big guy, but you're like, you're thick, you know? Yeah, so, so like 20, 20 something kgs less. Um, and I was living in a little hockey, washing myself out of a basin once every three days with two 28s and two prostitutes. Um, and I think what happened to me was this. The last week of my using, every time I injected into my arms, I started crying because I realized I was dying. For the first time, I had a revelation. Like, I looked around, and I thought, where am I? Why am I here? Why am I in this situation when I've got a family who love me, when I've got gifts and I've got talents? There's a future to take hold of. Something, 
I believe for me, God shifted my heart in that moment because obviously later in life, I became a Christian and that's what helped me, you know, stay strong and make choices and renew my mind and become the person I am today. Without that, I wouldn't be with you today. Um, but it's like, I phoned my dad and I said, and I, I want help, 14th of February, 2007. He used some very colorful words, which I won't repeat here. But he said, I'm not helping you. I spent nearly a million rand on you. What's, what's different now? I've heard the same story. Tears, cry, 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 go to rehab for three months, come out, use again a week later. I said, it's different this time. Can't pick me up. I begged. And this time I made it work. I, st- I think I stayed in treatment for about a year. And then I started working there for, for six months. And then, yeah, I met my girlfriend who became my wife. Um, but, yeah, it was... It was it Did you meet your girlfriend in rehab? No, no, she's completely opposite to me. She, she, I was working in Sedgefield at the rehab and I was on the beach that day with a friend of mine and she was there with her family on holiday. She's from Cape Town. So yeah, my, 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 wife, was the, my wife is the complete opposite of me. And I think that's a, something that's very important yeah. for people like us, you know? It's um, two addicts together no. um, is a recipe for disaster. And there's exceptions, obviously. Yeah. But... Um, I think 99% of the time, it's a recipe for disaster. People like you need someone that's got their shit together. Yeah, 100%. 100%. 100%. I, mean? 100%. I, tried the, I, tried the, I ran away from re, uh, the, the rehab once with a, with a girl. Um, was this after you, you said this was the, it, it was different? No, 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 no. This is, I'm okay, rewinding before, now. Yeah, I'm yeah. rewinding because now you brought something up to my mind. Yeah, yeah. It was like maybe my fourth time in rehab. You know, you get that rehab love. You fall in love with someone. You run, I ran away with this chick. She was a heroin addict. Um, and started using heroin with her, injecting heroin. We had our own flat, da-da-da-da. Uh, I think I was with her for about four or five months. And, um, yeah, it was just crazy how we became codependent. There were times where I'd be working because we worked at the bar um, to try and fund our little habits as well. And there were times I'd phone, and she wouldn't answer the phone. I'd run home, and she'd be, like, so high, cigarette burning her chin, burning her chest, burning the bed. And there were, there were times where she said to me towards the end, um, she said, why don't we just inject ourselves and go to sleep so we can be together forever? I was like, no, thank no, you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm out of here. Yeah, no, well, I didn't say, I just said yeah. no thanks. My dad actually rescued me. My dad, my dad rocked up at the house the one day because he heard stories and he said, let me see your arms. And obviously there were bruises. He, he, fought, he threw me in the car. There were no, there were no, um, Dude, he sounds like an amazing guy. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and the crazy part is that girl that I was dating, she's uh, in prison today for 25 years. Her and her boyfriend, following boyfriend after me, murdered an old man in OBS and a Nigerian OBS and they got caught. They got 25 years. Why did they do it? Why did they, mur- they murdered the Nigerian? Well, they strangled money. Drugs. The, well, they, yeah, drugs and money for the old man. So, so it's crazy. It's, it's crazy it's, the people we, we choose to allow into our space. It's, it's, it's insane how, addiction takes people to these places you know 100%. because you're a good guy yeah. and um to see where you are now and the amazing things you're doing yeah. it's hard to believe yeah. where you were yeah. a few years ago yeah. or several years ago yeah. um i think what we were talking about earlier is I wanted to talk about your hectic experiences because I, f- I feel like to give context to where you are now, you need to know where you come from. And um, you, you went through such a hectic, I mean, y- your childhood, you know, from, from the, the, the assaults to... To even like, sorry to cut your word, even to the point where, you know, I was willing to prostitute myself 
for money for drugs. I would go to Seapoint, to Bronx, gay clubs. I would let guys uh, touch my penis. Um, I don't even know how to say that on this because it's YouTube's. I think we're so far gone <laughs> when it oh, comes to the guidelines. But, but, uh, but, but uh, not to be rude, I would literally, I, I would never have sex with guys, but I would let them Do touch they, me. Yeah, yeah touch me. I'd, I'd flirt with them, touch them maybe a little bit, and they would pay me. Um, and uh, I've got no problem with gay people, but but I'm not gay. Um, but I was willing to go to that extent um, for the drugs. For your habit, yeah. For my habit, yeah. Uh, whatever it took. Um, and, 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 and yeah, it's just, it's just crazy. Like I said, the places that you find yourself in. I mean, you know, dark, dark, cold places um, where, you know, sometimes the situations you're in, uh, it could cost you your life. And, and I think when I was living in Somerset West, there was a time where guys tried to chase me in Makassar. Um, and I believe that day, if they'd caught me, I would have died. And like like I was saying just now, it's so insane to see where you were. Yeah. And where you are now. Yeah. I mean, what is life like now? Very different. I think I don't think I ever thought that I would have a life that I have now. Um, because obviously... Um, I was the person that was told that wouldn't amount to anything. I was the person that was said that would fail and, you know, die at the age of 23. And it seemed like for a long time you tried to make those predictions come true. Uh, correct, because, I mean, I, I, believed, I believed those opinions that were spoken over my life and whatever you believe, you start to see and you act them out. And, um, yeah, I just think, you know, 13 years later, uh, becoming an international motivational speaker, a life coach, an author, a father, um, a husband, um, having my own organization, Second Chance, which is now not only working in schools uh, in South Africa, but in America, Hawaii, Australia, where it's growing on an international basis, you know, sold over 6,000 copies of my book. Um, and can you show, show your book and tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, well, this is, we, we're talking like maybe 10% of my, of my journey. Because if we had to talk about everything in this book, we'd be here for hours. It, it wouldn't be 180 degrees. It'd yeah. be like 560 degrees. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is the the if if you want to like know like the nitty gritty details of things I did, places I went, things that happened to me, things I saw. You know, this is the story. And what's it called? It's called 180 degrees had to die to live because I went from one point to another, um, and I, I I believed I had to die nearly on the streets to want to live. And I believe on the streets, I, I, I died to my old self so I could come alive to my new self. Um, and, 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 and that's it. So, so we've got my own organization. And, and what kind of stuff does your charity do? So we work in schools specifically uh, around all the social issues. So resilience, bullying, um, self-esteem, decision-making. So gender-based violence. Did I say bullying as well? Yeah. So, so, so we really have... Uh, workshops for all the social pressures that kids face, social media workshops, because we want to empower them. We want to give them the right tools. We want them to have the right mindset. We want to give them a space where they can deal with their trauma because we have a trauma program as well because we want to see our generation change. And we've got a generation of young people that are so hurt and so wounded by life because of what they've been through and what they've seen. And they've got no space or no place to heal. They've got no place or space to take on new knowledge that can change their outlook on life. So we want to be that person or that organization that really gives them what they need um, so that they can actually become the greatest version of themselves and reach their goals and their dreams. And 
Yeah, we do that to the school program. We have equine-assisted therapy mm. with horses. And your your organization, you're the founder of the organization, Correct. right? Yes. Yeah. And um, who are some of the other members? In so we've got Blake, who's a two-time world champion hip-hop dancer. He runs that program. We've got Denzel Moses, who works in the community. He was an ex-gang leader 15 years ago, shot in his head by his brother and brought back to life miraculously, died for five minutes. Um, and he's 15 years in, in doing this work. And we've got Storm, who runs a lot of our uh, self-esteem and uh, trauma bereavement and stuff like that, uh, identity workshops. And then we've got Chelsea, who's involved in our Instagram and our social media and our admin, does a bit of speaking as well. And then we've got Cindy, who is my like managing director. It sounds like a lot of the people that are involved in the organization have been through very similar things to what you've been through yeah, as well. Di- di- in a different way. Some, you know, some sexual abuse, some uh, absent parents, some, you know, father that was harsh, um, some a little bit of everything. So, yeah, I-, I honestly believe that, you know, it does make it a bit different if you've been there yourself. Um, you can connect with people on a different level. On, on a different level. You can speak their language and they, 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 they understand that you understand. Um, and I think that what, that's what makes um, our job a little bit easier. And I think the, the most amazing thing is we give people the platform to share things they've never told anybody else. I mean, the things that we've heard over the years, it's, it's, it's horrific. But I mean, they say at the end, I feel a lot better after sharing that because I've never told anyone. So if you can give people the space to share things and heal from them, you're changing the world. And, and, and that's, that's our goal to help people heal and move forward. And you were saying earlier, sometimes secrets can make you sick. Yeah. And it is so true. Um, when you hold on to something, yeah. um, and especially the longer you hold on to it for, the, often the sicker it makes you feel. Yeah. And um, I think it starts changing the way you see yourself. But a lot of the times when you come out with that secret, and this can, I mean, this can be applied to many different things, say addiction, sexuality, everything, you feel so much better. You know? Why didn't I do this earlier? Why didn't I do this earlier? And it's amazing that you give people this platform and this this space yeah. to to kind of make those kind of transitions easier. And I think I think I think we're living in a generation of people that are looking for relief instead of freedom. There, there, there's a difference. We're looking for our generation is looking for a relief, like an instant gratification, a, a moment of pleasure that helps them escape their pain instead of actually dealing with the stuff and finding true freedom which is the best feeling ever. It's the journey of healing. Um, so we, want, we also want to shift people's mindsets to, to allow them to see, hey, I've actually got unhealthy habits in my life. I'm running to the wrong places uh, that aren't going to help me, but actually hurt me. And just coming towards the end, I want to ask, what's your relationships like now with your, your family? Well, my relationship with my parents now and my sister is amazing. Um, it's never been better. It took time though. It's, you know, it does take time because obviously in the beginning, People don't, don't re- trust you. Don't trust you. I mean, even like, dude, even when I changed, when I, when I became a Christian at my at the rehab I was at the last time when I gave my life, my heart to God, and my life was radically changed, the people at the rehab didn't and couldn't accept that I, Jared Smith, had changed. They, I promise you, they would stand around the corner hoping to see the old Jared because they couldn't grasp the fact that I changed. They told me, they literally said that you're going to be institutionalized for life. You, if you, you're going to have to live in rehabs for the rest of your life. Otherwise, if you leave here, you're going to die. So, so, so when I came out, obviously my parents had fear. Um, but I, I knew exactly what, what God had done and shifted in my heart. And I knew 
where I wanted to be. I was now hungry for a brighter future. I was hungry to become the greatest version of myself. And I, I wanted to change the world. I didn't know how at the time. Um, but yeah, if I think back to all that I've been blessed with and all I've achieved over the last you know, 13 years, it's far beyond what I could have ever asked for. Um, you know, even, even, even getting married and having kids, I never thought that that would be a possibility when I was 22 years old. I thought I was gonna die on the streets and be an addict for the rest of my life, you know? And how old are your kids? My daughter is three and a half and my other daughter is nine months. So very busy household. <laughs> very <laughs> busy. A, Take your time, bro. Honestly, so <laughs> incredible, eh? Like, um, I mean, with, with my experience, like when I got clean, um, like I think my parents were at that stage as well. They were like, we're never going to see Josh again. Yeah. You know, we, Josh is gone. Yeah. This is what we have to deal with now. Um, and we know a lot of people, not a lot of people, but we know people that have had kids that have ended up on the streets and like, there's nothing more heartbreaking to see your kid, but they're not there, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. Um, whether it be seeing them on the streets and they're just, they're right there, yeah. but you can't do anything yeah. because the person, them, they have to make the change. Yeah. And, um, when I got clean, um, I mean, I, st I started acting out a little bit in other ways, but slowly your brain starts coming right and things start to happen, you know? And um, it takes a while. And I'm sure for you as well, you probably went through w many weird phases as well. For sure. Um, but eventually you're, you're able to now sit down and do some work yeah. and get through it. You're able to find a set a goal yeah. and complete it. Yeah. And I think this is exactly what you're doing. You know, you've started the foundation. You've you've done it. You've done the book. Yeah. You've written it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. And these kind of things were never possible before. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think the the I think what really helped you and me is we found our purpose. And we found something that we're interested in. Coming back to the original conversation earlier, something that that gets our heart beating. You know, fast. That that helps. I honestly believe that a lot of addicts struggle to recover because they, they haven't found their purpose in life. And that is a deep question. Um, it's broad. But, you know, I think what's really important is that I just want to say that if there are people that are watching this that are, are in recovery early days or still on drugs, it is possible to change. It's, it's hard and it's painful. But if you really want a better future, it starts by you waking up every morning and making a choice to want a better future. There are going to be times where you wanna, you, you're going to want to give up. There are going to be times where you're going to crave. But ultimately, we don't have to give in to feelings. Even though the feeling's intense, we still have free will to choose over those feelings. We can choose to phone a friend even though we're craving. We can choose to walk away from a situation that we actually want to walk to, towards. You know, it's, it's coming to that place where we learn to say no when we feel like saying yes. And it's possible. It's difficult, but it is possible. 100%. That's, I'm not saying it's easy. Yeah. It's, it's hard, but it's but, it's, but a better life is possible and everybody deserves healing. And, and, and even though it's painful, when we heal, that pain becomes a gift. It teaches us things about life and ourselves that we couldn't read in a book or in a textbook. And I mean, I think it shows so much in you that it is possible because what you've been through, you shouldn't be sitting here today. 100%. But anyway... I think that brings us to the end of this episode of the Wide Awake podcast. I think this is the sixth episode now. Thank you so much for coming Thanks on. Thanks for having me, Josh. It's, uh, yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. It was awesome hearing your story again. Awesome. And um, yeah, I hope you guys are still wide awake as always. Um, 
Yeah, I think that brings us to the end. Thanks again, man. Awesome, man. Thanks cool. so much. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Bye. <laughs> awesome, dude. Shot room. That was. Yeah,